The Honorable, the Chief Justice, and the Associate Justices of the Supreme Court of the United States. Oh, yay, oh, yay, oh, yay. All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States, are admonished to draw near and give their attention, for the Court is now sitting. God save the United States and this Honorable Court. Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on Legal Talk Network. I'm Lawrence Coletti coming to you from San Diego, California. I'm the executive producer for this network and frequent writer for our blog. I'm also an attorney, and today I'm standing in for both hosts, Mr. Bob Ambrogi and Mr. J. Craig Williams. But before we introduce today's topic, I want to take a little moment here and thank our sponsor, Clio. Clio's cloud-based practice management software makes it easy to manage your law firm from intake to invoice. Try it for free at clio.com. That's C-L-I-O.com. C-L-I-O.com. At the end of last month, Justice Anthony Kennedy announced he would be retiring and stepping down effective July 31st, 2018. On the evening of July 9th, President Trump announced his top pick to fill Justice Kennedy's vacancy, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, who currently presides in the United States Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Circuit. This news regarding Kennedy's retirement comes just after the 2017-2018 Supreme Court session. So what does that mean? Today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we will discuss President Trump's nominee, Judge Brett Kavanaugh, the subsequent reaction to his nomination, the recent Supreme Court session and landmark cases therein, and the upcoming Supreme Court session. And to do that, I have a terrific lineup of guests for you today. We first welcome back to the show Elizabeth Slattery, a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edward Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. She analyzes cases before the Supreme Court, judicial nominations, and the proper role of the courts. Slattery also manages the Mies Center's appellate advocacy programs, including moot court sessions to prepare litigators for oral argument in important cases pending before the Supreme Court. Welcome back to the show, Elizabeth. Thanks for having me. In addition, we welcome David Latt, editor-at-large and founding editor of Above the Law, as well as the author of Supreme Ambitions, a novel. He previously worked as a federal prosecutor in Newark, New Jersey, a litigation associate at Wachtell, Lipton, Rosen, and Katz, and a law clerk to Judge Duramud F. O'Scanlan of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Ninth Circuit. In an effort to avoid being fake news, I must mention that David is a friend to us at Legal Talk Network, and then we also produce a podcast in conjunction with Above the Law called Thinking Like a Lawyer. You should definitely check it out. It's a great show. Welcome back, David. Hey, thanks, Lawrence. All right. To kick things off, I have a loaded two-part question for both of you. Are you ready? Bring it on. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So here's part one. Do you think Judge Kavanaugh will make a good justice for the Supreme Court? Why or why not? That's part one. And then part two, do you think he will make it through Senate confirmation? David, let's start with you. My answers to your questions are yes and yes. Uh, Brett Kavanaugh, Judge Kavanaugh will be a superb addition to the Supreme Court. He is an experienced, smart, thoughtful judge who believes and understands the role of the judiciary in our democracy. And I think he will be confirmed. There are no objective reasons to oppose 
his confirmation, and the Republicans uh, do have the votes they need in the Senate. I also predict that he will pick up a few uh, red state Democrats. So I believe that Judge Kavanaugh will soon be Justice Kavanaugh. Elizabeth, same question. I wholeheartedly agree. I think that Judge Kavanaugh has sterling academic credentials, 12 years of service on the D.C. Circuit, which has long been considered the stepping stone to the Supreme Court, and he's already battle-tested. He's been through a contentious confirmation hearing back in the mid-2000s when he joined the D.C. Circuit. So I think he will be a great addition to the Supreme Court, and I, I agree with David's analysis that he may even get some votes from the Democrats. So as a follow-up, is there anything potentially that could get in the way blocking Judge Kavanaugh from becoming the next Supreme Court justice? Well, I mean, we've already seen, you know, Chuck Schumer came out and said he's going to give it everything he's got. The mudslinging has begun. You know, we're hearing the sort of chicken little response that the the sky is going to fall and that all sorts of issues are on the chopping block when Justice Kavanaugh is confirmed. But you know what? I think he's going to be a great addition. I don't think there are going to be any major obstacles uh, that come out during the confirmation process, during the the Senate hearing. I, I think the American people are going to get to know him better over the course of the summer and they're going to like what they see. And David, do you see any potential roadblocks? I think there is a lot in Judge Kavanaugh's record that he will be asked about. He has had a long and distinguished career at the center of American law and politics. He worked for Ken Starr on the Whitewater-Monica Lewinsky matter. As a D.C. Circuit judge, he has ruled on such controversial issues as abortion and uh, the Affordable Care Act, a.k.a. Obamacare. There's certainly a lot to ask him about. But I suspect, I predict, that he will answer the questions very skillfully and thoughtfully and well. And in the end, uh, I agree with Elizabeth. I think he will be confirmed. Okay, so right now we're at the nomination stage. And so obviously there's several steps before uh, we potentially confirm him as a justice of the Supreme Court, Judge Kavanaugh. So if everything plays out according to plan, and this is a question for Elizabeth, what are the remaining steps before we potentially get a new justice on the Supreme Court? Sure. So yesterday, he began making his rounds with the senators. Uh, The vice president escorted him over to meet with Mitch McConnell and others in Republican leadership. And so between now and when the the hearings are scheduled later this summer, he's going to continue to get to know as many of the members of the Senate as will meet with him. There are going to be many, many documents uh, coming over to the Senate for them to review, you know, from his time in the White House during uh, the George W. Bush administration that they'll be reviewing. Uh, and those will be things they'll you know, be preparing for uh, before the hearing, which I think will likely be later this summer or maybe into the early fall, hopefully with a confirmation before the, the Supreme Court comes back on October 1st. Excellent. And David, you were on a show of ours, uh, Thinking Like a Lawyer, a little over a week ago, and you came out and predicted that Judge Kavanaugh would be the uh, nominee for President Trump. What made you so sure? In many ways, he is the perfect pick for a Republican president. President Trump does like to surprise us, and in many areas of policymaking, he can be a bit iconoclastic. But when it comes to the federal judiciary, he has played it very safe. I mean, safe in a good way. He has nominated people of impeccable qualifications who would also be very uh, satisfying to the president's conservative base. And if you look at qualifications and if you look at a commitment to judicial philosophies like textualism and originalism, Judge Kavanaugh is pretty much the top of the list, uh, regardless of whether this was going to be President Trump's pick or President Rubio's pick or President Bush, the third Bush's pick. Uh, So I really was not surprised uh, to see Judge Kavanaugh get the nomination. And 
pretty much right out of the gate, perhaps two hours after Justice Kennedy's retirement news broke, I uh, predicted that uh, Judge Kavanaugh was going to be the pick. Well, historically, Justice Kennedy has been, I guess he's been portrayed as a swing vote for the Supreme Court by people that follow the Supreme Court. And since you're both very certain, or at least somewhat sure, that uh, Judge Kavanaugh is going to be the next Supreme Court justice, how do you see that playing out? How will the court rebalance itself with the addition of this new justice? Yeah, so Justice Kennedy, he had a a bit of a complicated relationship with the conservative movement. You know, he voted um, with the so-called conservative bloc on the Supreme Court in, in a number of areas, uh, and then he was with the liberals in some other areas. But I would point out in this last term, he was with the conservatives, I think, in the 19 cases that they decided. And his voting record aligned most closely with Neil Gorsuch. And I think that uh, Brett Kavanaugh has the potential to be very similar to Neil Gorsuch, you know, kind of like Gorsuch 2.0 coming to the Supreme Court. So I'm not sure that we're going to see a, you know, a, a market shift to the right on the court. I agree with Elizabeth. I think that predictions of some radical shift in the Supreme Court are greatly exaggerated. We forget, because of some high-profile exceptions, that Justice Kennedy was in many ways a fundamentally conservative justice. He sided with his conservative counterparts far more often than he sided with his liberal or progressive counterparts. The exception, the very prominent exception, uh, is in the area of LGBT rights, which might be Justice Kennedy's greatest legacy. But I think that that fight is mostly won. I don't know that the court is going to be confronting too many more issues in that area. I think perhaps the employment uh, discrimination issue is one of the few remaining, but I don't think Obergefell and marriage equality are being revisited. I think you'll have some litigation along the lines of the recent Masterpiece Cake Shop concerning people who have religious objections to same-sex marriage, but I don't think you're going to see a huge amount of activity there. So if you take that out of the equation, there isn't huge amount of daylight between Justice Kennedy and soon-to-be Justice Kavanaugh. All right. So, Elizabeth and David, uh, as a lead up to some upcoming questions about bias and ideology on the Supreme Court, I wanted to get your reaction to the following soundbite, which features United States Senator Chuck Schumer discussing the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society and their relevance in picking Supreme Court justices. Now, bear with me. It's about a minute long. Adam, let's go ahead and play that soundbite. Now, normally in the Senate, we have a process of advise and consent on the Supreme Court. In the old days, the president would consult with Republicans and Democrats in the Senate on a qualified judge, and then after careful deliberation, nominate a jurist that could get bipartisan support. What we have here is the exact opposite. The president has gone to two far out of the mainstream hard right groups, the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society, and asked them, not the Senate, to advise and consent on a Supreme Court nomination. Whomever the president selects tonight, if that nominee is from the pre-approved list selected by Leo and the Heritage Foundation, everyone ought to understand what it means for the freedom of women to make their own health care decisions and for the protection for Americans with pre-existing conditions. Those rights will be gravely threatened. Elizabeth, Senator Schumer is really calling out the Heritage Foundation. What, what do you think about that? Well, I'm, I'm kind of amused by his comments because 
We know that President Trump met with several members of the Senate. You know, in particular, he had meetings with Susan Collins and Lisa Murkowski. And I believe he may have even met with some of the, you know, red state Democrats who are up for reelection. So I, I think this, this idea that he was only talking to the Federal Society and the Heritage Foundation is, is a little silly. And I would point out that, you know, President Trump should really be commended for the transparency of this entire process. He put together a list before he was even elected as president, and he amended it twice, adding some more individuals. But the American people could see the type of individuals that he would select for a Supreme Court nominee. And I think that's to be commended. It's, it's never been done before, and, and the American people knew exactly the type of individuals that Trump would pick. And he's made good on that promise twice now. David, how about you? What do you think? I agree that it's a bit rich for Chuck Schumer to be complaining about a lack of consultation when President Trump actually had a phone call with Chuck Schumer during the time that he was considering possible Supreme Court nominees. It has been reported that Senator Schumer gave the somewhat non-helpful, non-starter recommendation that President Trump nominate Merrick Garland, so that probably wasn't very useful input into the process. But make no mistake, Senator Schumer was contacted and did speak with the president. And as Elizabeth just pointed out, the White House heard from many, many senators from across the spectrum and from many different states before they settled on Judge Kavanaugh. So I think that there was ample opportunity for the senators to give their input. The other thing I would add is I don't know where he... Uh, comes from in saying that the Federalist Society and the Heritage Foundation are out of the mainstream. Uh, They are very mainstream organizations that represent viewpoints that I think a majority of the American people would hold about a variety of issues, including the role of the Supreme Court in our society and in our democracy. So I don't agree with pretty much anything Senator Schumer said. Well, we're going to need to leave it there because we need to take a quick break and hear a message from our sponsor. But when we get back, we're going to continue our discussion about bias and ideology on the Supreme Court. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With intuitive time tracking, billing, and matter management, Clio streamlines everything you do to run your practice from intake to invoice. Try Clio for free and get a 10% discount for your first six months when you sign up at their website, clio.com, that's C-L-I-O.com, with the code L2L10, that's L2L, the number 10. Welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and with us today is Elizabeth Slattery, a legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edward Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, and David Latt, editor-at-large and founding editor of Above the Law, as well as the author of Supreme Ambitions, a novel. We continue our discussion about the Supreme Court, its nomination process, Judge Kavanaugh, Justice Kennedy, bias and ideology, as well as the recent and upcoming Supreme Court session. So where we left off with our guests here was we were talking a little bit about the reaction to Senator Chuck Schumer's comments about uh, the influence of the Heritage Foundation as well as the Federalist Society. But I wanted to transition the conversation back into uh, a little bit more about the bias. And so I wanted to kind of get back to law school. Uh, I'm sure these are fond memories for many people out there. But uh, when I was in law school, I was taught that the role of judges and justices was to apply the facts of the case to the law and that they should avoid legislating from the bench. But 
over the years, I've certainly noticed that every time there's a Supreme Court nomination, whether it's Justice Sotomayor, Justice Kagan, Justice Gorsuch, or in this case, Judge Kavanaugh, the political bodies that be get whipped up into a frothy, as Elizabeth would say, chicken little frenzy with the sky falling. But uh, how much of that is true? You know, does bias and ideology factor into actual decisions made at our nation's highest court? You know, David, I think I'd like to start this one with you. I think it's certainly the case that one's judicial philosophy or understanding of the court's role in society will affect how you rule on cases. That is, I think, undoubtedly true. I also agree with political scientists who say that the Supreme Court is partly a political institution. Uh, I think it would be in many ways better or more ideal if it was just a pure creature of law and legal doctrine. But I think for better or worse, there is a certain amount of political reality to the court's role. Uh, So it is often the case that conservative judges will vote in a way that one would expect and liberal judges will vote in a way that uh, one would expect. But uh, at the end of the day, this is in many ways, what people uh, vote for when they select a president and when they select senators. They want people who will uh, implement, uh, politicians who will implement their views of the role of the judiciary, Uh, especially President Trump, who, as we've discussed, was very transparent about the types of judges and justices he was going to place on the bench. And Elizabeth, what do you think? Well, I I think it's you know, it's important that we we keep the focus on the proper role of the judiciary, that justices should try to minimize the influence of their personal views and their biases on the law by, you know, interpreting the statutory text according to the text. I mean, Judge Kavanaugh has written that the text of the law is the law. You know, he's not going to be digging into legislative history and and things like that. And, And trying to interpret the provisions of the Constitution, again, according to their text and and looking to the history and their original public meaning. You know, this type of ideology, I think, best ensures that judges keep their political views and their personal preferences out of the law. Okay, well, that's definitely enlightening. So let me let me ask you this as just kind of a quick follow-up. Just in, in your opinion, you know, you're, you're both uh, very well-educated in the law. How does the Supreme Court operate best? Would it operate best if, you know, judges simply put their political leanings and ideology aside, or do you think this is just par for the course? The Supreme Court would be its best self, I think, if the judges did leave their personal and political views uh, at the bronze doors and focused very much on applying and interpreting the law as written and as understood. I think that would be the best role and the proper role uh, of the Supreme Court. In some ways, you can see the court operating at its best when it is dealing with non-political issues, when it is interpreting statutes like ERISA, the pension law, or interpreting provisions of the tax code, where you see these lineups of justices that are not just five conservatives and four liberals, but you see these unusual coalitions because these are just judges who are interpreting and applying a law based on their understanding of the law. In some ways, those cases are the Supreme Court at its best. And Elizabeth, what are your thoughts? 
I agree with that. And, and I would point out that the public really only hears or cares about a small percentage of the cases that the Supreme Court is deciding. You know, the 5-4 cases are less than, I think, something like less than 20 percent of the cases they decide each term. And, you know, far more of their decisions are made unanimously or with very little disagreement. And I think David is right that their work shines best through, we can see, in, you know, in sort of run-of-the-mill statutory cases involving, you know, things that the average American doesn't think about, like ERISA. So, you know, we've talked about, you know, the decision-making process here for the cases that are heard, but, uh, you know, I learned something new in researching uh, this show. And so just beyond those those decisions in the actual cases, the Supreme Court can set its own agenda where it sifts through some six to 8,000 possible cases. They narrow it down to roughly 80, which you'll actually hear. And so I recently read in a study titled Ideology and Agenda Setting at the U.S. Supreme Court by Ben Johnson from the Department of Politics at Princeton University that the selection of cases to be heard was the most important function of the Supreme Court in terms of advancing the law, and that this is an area where bias and ideology can play a very big role. And for the most part, it's overlooked. So, you know, David, I turn to you. What do you think about that? You know, the elimination of cases from the docket, how does that play out? I agree that the decisions made by the court in terms of which cases to hear are profoundly important and do shape how the law evolves. The Supreme Court gets thousands of cases that uh, are asking for the court review. And it hears actually in recent terms, even fewer than 80. It's uh, been closer in some ways, I think, to 60 in recent terms. So when the court decides to hear a case or to not hear a case, that is in many ways the most important decision. Except for a few specific types of cases, the Supreme Court's uh, jurisdiction is what's called discretionary, meaning the court has the discretion about whether to hear a case or not. And the way it exercises that discretion is a very important function. I think that's right, and and one of the the things that uh, the justices look for when they're deciding whether or not to take up a case is they often want to let the lower courts sort of chew on issues for a while before they take up an issue, and that's something we saw, for example, in uh, the Masterpiece Cake decision that came out this year. They had waited for a while before they decided to take up that issue. There were a number of cases raising similar issues between, uh, you know, objections of religious individuals who did not want want to be involved in a same-sex wedding ceremony. And I forget how many times they relisted the Masterpiece petition before they finally decided they were going to take the case. But I think giving the lower courts the opportunity to sort of flesh out things and waiting for a circuit split where they can take up a case is something that's important in that decision as well. The 2017-2018 Supreme Court session just ended, and like most sessions, we saw a bunch of very pivotal cases that are going to change the fabric of our law. So just in your opinion, uh, I think you guys come at it from different sides of the fence here, but name a few of the most important and influential cases that were decided in this term. And, And Elizabeth, this time I'd like to start with you. Sure. I mean, there were a number of really high-profile cases, you know, the travel ban, the Janus Unions case. There were a number of other free speech cases involving, you know, whether you can wear political T-shirts at the polls, you know, California's efforts to to basically try to drive pro-life pregnancy centers out of business by forcing them to uh, advertise the state's free abortion program and many more. This was a a big term after the previous term, which had been kind of a snooze fest. And David, how about you? There were a number of uh, notable cases this past term. I think Elizabeth has identified many of them. 
One area that the court was interested in this past term and looks to still be interested in is the area of arbitration and the extent to which employers or companies can force or require uh, employees or customers to enter into arbitration of disputes as opposed to litigation in the courts. Looking forward, so we've got a 2018-2019 session starting here in October. We'll possibly have a new justice on the court. And so just kind of given your expertise, uh, what do you think will be the issues in the cases heard in this upcoming session? Uh, David, let's start with you. I think that so far, the upcoming term, uh, to borrow Elizabeth's term, looks a little bit like a snooze fest. There isn't really anything super exciting, I think, uh, on the docket. There are uh, several cases exploring the issue of arbitration uh, that I mentioned earlier. There are some cases involving environmental law and the Endangered Species Act. There's some cases involving employment discrimination. But I don't see too many blockbuster cases. Uh, that said, I have no lack of confidence in the Trump administration's ability to generate some interesting controversies that the court can then weigh in on. So uh, it is far from done at this point. Elizabeth, do you agree with David? I think it's right. You know, they they haven't accepted their full slate of cases for the next term. Um, and the, the October calendar just came out, so we know what's going to be argued in the first few weeks of the term. And there there's one case that I think is going to be pretty interesting, and I would love to, to see Justice Kavanaugh, you know, hopefully Justice Kavanaugh, on the bench in time to hear it. It's a case involving the non-delegation doctrine. This deals with Congress's delegating legislative responsibility to executive branch officials. And this is an issue that the court has basically not ruled on since the 1930s, the New Deal era. And I'm, I'm really excited to see what happens in that case. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our program for today, but I'd like to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and contact information. And so ladies first, Elizabeth, let's start with you. Well, I want to thank you all so much for having me today. This has been a lot of fun. You know, I, I think we've got an exciting summer coming up with hopefully the confirmation of our, our next Supreme Court Justice, Brett Kavanaugh. And, and hopefully the court will add some more interesting cases for its next term so that when Kavanaugh joins them, they'll be ready to go. If you want to follow me, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at E.H. Slattery. And I also host a podcast for the Heritage Foundation that's called SCOTUS 101. And you can find us on all the major platforms uh, wherever you listen to your podcasts. All right. And David? In terms of my final thoughts, uh, I would just ask for or plead for uh, civility in the upcoming nomination and confirmation process. I certainly understand the reasons that liberals, progressives, and Democrats want to oppose Judge Kavanaugh. I hope that in articulating the opposition, they will focus on judicial philosophy as opposed to making personal attacks on him or personal attacks on people who defend him. I think that, uh, and you can cast blame on both sides, but I think that the climate we're living in for legal and political discussion is uh, uh, oftentimes very uh, unpleasant. I do invite people to contact me. I can be reached by email at dlat at abovethelaw.com, dlat at abovethelaw.com. And I can be followed on Twitter at David Latt. And you can also follow Above the Law on Twitter at ATL blog. I think that's well said. I think our country is overdue for a little bit of civility. So I know there's some disagreements out there and people are passionate on both sides, but you know, we need to talk these things out, not fight it out. 
And that brings us to the end of our show. If you'd like what you heard today, please rate us an Apple podcast. You can also find us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can leave a comment on today's show and sign up for our newsletter. Thank you for listening. I'm Lawrence Coletti, and join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Join J. Craig Williams and Robert Ambrosi for their next podcast covering the latest legal topic. Subscribe to the RSS feed on LegalTalkNetwork.com or in iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Guy Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.